would say is, believe you me, if any of you appear before me, you will think I'm a real judge. <laughs> so um, I'm going to have to choose something to um, make a decision as to when we move to the next slide. And has anybody got any good suggestions? What should I choose? Should I just say click <laughs> or something more imaginative than that? Anything judicial I could, I could use? No? Maybe we'll just stick with click. So let's test it. Click. <laughs> Behind me you see two sets of organ pipes. One is real and one is imaginary. And I just see a very good friend in the congregation tonight who will know when I say about each of them, Ceci n'est pas une pipe. <laughs> uh, these are not pipes. These are representations of pipes. That's a whole other discipline. Um, I want you to imagine briefly a scenario where, since we now have an electronic organ and these pipes are now effectively solely for show, um, they don't produce sound anymore, our sound is produced electronically. Imagine a situation if we were to decide to, to take those pipes away and we had a nice blank wall behind me. What do you think um, you would like to do with that wall? What would you put on that blank wall? Would you um, just paint it a nice shade of yellow like all of the rest of the building? Would you think maybe um, I'll put uh, a nice scroll on it with some scripture, such as I experienced in my youth when I was growing up? Um, Behold the Lamb of God. I saw that every Sunday morning. It's a possibility. Anybody want to make any suggestions? Or no? Well, there's one coming from somewhere. Yes? An empty cross. Yes, that's a common enough. One for us to focus our worship on. An empty cross. Words of scripture. Um, yes, put the screen in the center. There's a practical suggestion from a man who's consumed with practical issues. Uh, click. Click again. Would anyone think about putting something like that up? If I had found my um, laser cat scarer, I could have pointed out different features of that um, painting to you. You can see at the bottom the altar and the candles on it, so it's clearly the same sort of positioning. Does anyone know where that is? Has anyone seen that in reality? It's uh, the last judgment from the Sistine Chapel, painted by some guy called Michelangelo. I don't think it could be very good because it took me four years to do it. Um, up in the top there in the centre you see our Lord coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead to our left. The saints are rising from the bottom of the picture to be caught up into the sky and taken up into heaven. The apostles and the martyrs are standing around our Lord in a group. To our right, um, that ferryman whose name I've forgotten and that river beginning with a sea whose name I've forgotten He's ferrying the dead across into hell. That um, was painted in the 1400s for the Sistine Chapel. In those days, people didn't really mind coming into church. It's not just the Sistine Chapel, as you'll see as we go on. 
Um, They didn't mind coming into church and seeing things like that in their faces. It's a pretty um, stark and serious subject, the separation of the elect from the damned, Um, a doctrine of eternal separation of people into the righteous and the damned. Interestingly, this morning in Hosea, when Steve was... um, telling us about the first verse of chapter 4. He mentioned the way the message has uh, translated that particular section. And I've um, looked at the message uh, for this evening. It says in Hosea chapter 4, verse 1, Attention all Israel. God's message. God indicts the whole population. No one is faithful. No one loves. No one knows the first thing about God. All this cursing and lying and killing, theft and loose sex, sheer anarchy, one murder after another. Pretty strong um, sentiments when conveyed in the ordinary language that we're used to day by day, reading in the newspapers, for example. But it struck me as Steve was talking this morning how his um, sermon about God's um, charge against Israel, the nation Israel, fits in with what I want us to, as a people together, focus on tonight. And that is God's charge against each individual soul whom he created. So Hosea this morning was an indictment against the people of Israel. In this particular theme that we're going to be thinking about, we're going to be looking at the indictment that will be presented against you, you sitting there, you sitting there, me standing here. Um, It's not a very comfortable subject, and I must tell you, it's taken me some time wrestling with it to um, get into it in any way and get my head around it. I hope it's not one of those old-fashioned notions, again, that Steve mentioned this morning, old-fashioned notions that modern Christians should have long ago discarded. Although I know that there are some Christian thinkers who have recently put pen to paper and whatever way they have expressed themselves, they have left a large section of the Christian community accusing them of doing just that, of discarding hell, discarding the reality of an eternal separation between the righteous and the damned. For Christians, it is a very painful topic. Uh, Many of us worry about loved ones um, and if hell exists, whether they're headed there. It's a painful topic. Other people worry about it for other reasons. They worry that um, if we speak this um, difficult and foreboding language in the public square, nobody's going to become Christians. That's not very inviting. We really shouldn't be doing that in the public square. Uh, Click. Click. Ah, here's somebody who was in the public square. God is angry with the wicked every day. 
He gets that from Psalm verse um, 11, Psalm 7 verse 11. I looked that up just to make sure that that really is in there, and it sort of is, yeah. Some of us find that kind of uh, approach extremely uncomfortable. It's unsettling, and it's not the way I would preach the gospel, and I wish they wouldn't do it. People are going to be put off. So that's a reasonable point of view. Um, And it makes us wonder about the way in which we present the gospel rather than the, the truths of the gospel that we need to hold on to, whatever we decide about the way in which we present it. Now, Steve mentioned again this morning that we didn't um, have enough um, focus really on the Psalms. We're Presbyterians, after all, in name, if not in spirit. And um, the Psalms should be something we look at. Again, quite um, um, serendipitously, if that's the word, I have, um, in thinking about this, turned to the Psalms, and there are good place, places in the Psalms to start our thinking about this issue of um, the dichotomy between God's wrath and mercy. Uh, scripture is clear that those are both attributes of God. Click. Again, please. Ah. We may try again. Um, It's coming out. So, Psalm 101, verse 1. I will sing of your love and justice to you, Lord. I will sing praise. Click again, please. Keep trying. Yep. Psalm 89. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. So there, in those two psalms alone, we see this paradox, this um, dichotomy between the wrath of God, righteousness and justice, and the mercy of God, love and faithfulness. That's been a paradox that has filled many uh, shelves with books from it was first um, discussed. Um, God is a God of love. And he wants to see his creatures restored to a relationship with him. God is a God of justice. He cannot tolerate sin. How does God, the God of love, achieve the object of God, the God of wrath? And have the two worked out in some way? It's a paradox Both of those things, of course, are true. We click to our next one. John 3.16, well-known verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God is a God of love. We click again. Matthew chapter 7 Verse 21, which is the, I can't uh, recite that one from heart just as easily. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of God. That's that one. Here it comes. Um, so while that's, that's coming up, you can see that um, we juxtapose 
John 3.16, the clear message of God's love, with this warning that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So there it is. And my question that I want us to consider this evening, are we in danger of dispensing with justice? All right, so there's where the title comes in. Um, I don't think judges in this land normally are sitting there dispensing with justice. But uh, it's an interesting um, little expression. So this paradox, um, whether the modern church has gone so far in sweetening the message of God's love for this generation that we are in danger of abandoning um, entirely, perhaps, God's message of justice for the unrighteous. And if we click again, uh, as anyone read this particular book, I'm sure some of you will own up to it. There's a confession. I'll speak to you later, Michael. Uh, I have it actually on this in an e-book format. Um, it's a book by Rob Bell. It says in small print at the bottom, best-selling author of The Velvet Elvis. Some of you may have read that book, where the, the beginnings of this uh, approach can even be seen there. This book created a bit of controversy earlier this year, and it's what I was uh, referring to a short while ago. A number of Christians felt that Rob Bell has lost the plot He's gone so far in trying to make the gospel accessible to the great unwashed that he's thrown away entirely a fundamental truth, namely the reality of hell and the reality of the eternal nature of hell. If we click again. This is the preface. It's taken from the preface in the book. And I'll let it load for a minute. And this um, preface, you will find, uses strong language. It talks about how many people have been um, brought up with a, a notion of Jesus that um, says that people are condemned to an eternity in hell without any hope of release. And that that particular thinking, Rob Bell says, is toxic. He uses the word toxic. He says um, that it's not really uh, something that one should maybe think uh, inviting to people in the modern age. So there's an issue uh, as to um, whether or not this whole idea of the last judgment, Michelangelo's fresco in the Sistine Chapel that was so um, natural to people in the Middle Ages, it really doesn't want to load, you see. <laughs> That's our good church computer. Oh, load it up and we'll talk about it. <laughs> a staggering number of people. Even the use of the word staggering there, a loaded word, a select few. He's getting them all in here. A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians. Um, slowly, slowly. Um, I'm not necessarily saying that it's easy to categorize Rob Bell's thinking. I've read the book and I've read a couple of books that have been fired out very quickly. In answer to it, I've brought one of them tonight if anyone wants to borrow it. It's called Erasing Hell by a guy called Francis Chan. 
who speaks very um, soberly about the issue and um, in a very heart-searching way about the seriousness of the issue. Um, I apologise for the technology. Um, It's actually a miracle in itself that Chris has managed to get anything on the screen because uh, there seemed to be a... um, What's the word? A paradox or a dichotomy between the, this particular laptop and the church IT system. We've got a bit more of it now. Let's revisit it. This love compels us to question some of the dominant stories that people are being told as the Jesus story. A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell. Um, And I know what I'll do now. I think I'll just load up my own laptop and in those circumstances I'll read it from, from that, if you don't mind me taking a moment to do that. So we'll maybe move on to the next slide, Chris, and hope that... uh, Oh, (laughs) This is um, Westminster Abbey, and um, I had the privilege of being there just about this time last month at this ceremony. This is the opening of the law term when um, all of the judges in England and Wales gather in Westminster Abbey for a, a Christian service. And the Lord Chief Justice and all his judges down the centre and the lower judges to the side. Um, These are the kind of people that you and I would come before if we committed some crime and uh, we had an indictment in our own uh, legal system presented against us. Uh, These are the people who are called on to act as judges on earth Just to return to Rob Bell's sentiments, Rob Bell speaks about um, this toxic notion of hell um, preventing God's message of love, peace, forgiveness and joy from being spread in the world. And it did occur to me when I was reading that, if I went before one of those boys and threw myself on the mercy of the court and said, I wanted to rely on the love and the mercy of the court, the forgiveness of the court. I don't think it would affect the sentence they would impose on me all that much. It might affect it a bit. But if they were to simply dispense justice in an earthly way, solely having regard to love and mercy, you and I know that the first person to hear about it would be a guy on Radio Ulster called Stephen Nolan. And everyone would be phoning in and saying, that's not justice. There has to be justice, whatever you think about the person. But if this new thinking about hell and the eternal reality of it is, as I understand Rob Bell to be saying, and I might be wrong about that, but if it is, then it seems to me... um, Maybe he's saying there is no day of judgment. Maybe there is no condemnation for anyone. Let's look at the next slide. 
Psalm 50. Psalm 50, the mighty one God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, beautiful in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. The next one. Psalm 96, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, bring an offering and come into his courts, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, tremble before him all the earth, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved, he will judge the peoples with equity. So the psalmist clearly um, has in mind the judgment of God on the people. Uh, Christ is our advocate. If um, we need to appear in a court in temporal terms, it's a good idea to have a good advocate. Uh, I was planning to put up an advert at the start um, because I sort of thought you'd expect it off me being a lawyer and your low opinion of lawyers but with the IT problems I didn't get a chance to um, put it up but if anyone wants a good lawyer (laughs) you'd be a fool to go into a court in temporal terms without an advocate we need an advocate here in order to argue our case and to appear for us and present um, our case before the judge In our um, Christian faith, Christ is our advocate, our QC, if you like. And not only that, because unlike a temporal advocate, Christ himself has paid the penalty. He has paid the price for our transgressions. So in the heavenly court, as in the temporal court, we need an advocate. And in the heavenly court, We need not only an advocate to speak for us, but because of all the Christian um, theology and um, teaching that we all understand and know, we need an advocate for all of those reasons who is the only one capable of paying the price. If you have a good friend as a lawyer, he won't help you in heaven. You need our Lord. You click on the next one. Even um, that particular QC would not um, avail very much in places above. And um, we click on the next one. This is Romans 8. C.H. Spurgeon, whom many of you will have um, read his sermons and know about, described as the prince of preachers in the 19th century, he thought Judgment Day was going to be a positive experience for Christians. He said, the righteous have no reason to fear coming into judgment. We are not afraid to be put in the balances. We even desire that day when our faith in Jesus Christ is strong and firm. For we say, who is he that condemneth? 
we can challenge the day of judgment. Who is he that shall lay anything to our charge in that day, or at any other day, since Christ hath died and hath risen again? And you see there where he got that. And the next one, please, Chris. This is our own um, judicial procession at the opening of our own law term. That's the Lord Chief Justice, Sir Declan Morgan, and all the other judges coming behind. Our own legal system here and in the what we call the common law countries is very much based on the biblical description of the Day of Judgment. Uh, descriptions of the Day of Judgment. The idea of uh, a courtroom with all of the trappings, all of the honour and respect due to people like that. When he comes in, it all falls silent. Um, everyone stands. A crier shouts out, all stand, something of that nature, all rise. No one speaks unless they're spoken to. The whole system uh, of temporal judgment is based on a respect and, again, to reflect back on what Steve had said this morning, a fear of God, a fear for God, a holy fear, not being frightened of, but a respectful awe, as Steve indeed well defined it this morning. The next slide, please. Um, John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We have an advocate, as I said earlier, before God the Father. He intercedes for us. You and I are uh, poorly equipped to carry out that function in the heavenly court. Uh, and our Lord carries out that function for us both now and in the future. Now, I mentioned earlier that Spurgeon said that Christians shouldn't fear the day of judgment. And that is right. And again, we have scripture that helps us to enter into that understanding. We have the next slide, please. Um, back to the Psalms again. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? And so it goes on. Verse 8. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. The next one, please. What I've called and people mention the ocean of forgetfulness. Micah verse 7. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Isaiah 43. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. This um, last judgment is not a day of trial. It is a day of separation. It's a day when the sheep are separated from the goats. It's not, we won't be put on trial. It is the judgment of God. 
Um, Christ has interceded for us. And um, these three scriptures remind us that we do not have to fear our sins being cast up to us on uh, the last judgment. Bear that in mind as I reread what Rob Bell said, and we didn't get a chance really to see it because of the screen. A staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven, while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell, with no chance of anything better. It has been clearly communicated to man that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith, And to reject it is, in essence, to reject Jesus. Rob Bell challenges that. It does seem to me, however, that the message of Scripture is, and always has been, that this is indeed a central truth of the Christian faith, and not one that falls into the category that um, Steve mentioned this morning of uh, those old-fashioned notions we have long since discarded. St. Paul and St. John the Divine speak of the last judgment in these terms. If we could have the next, please. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 10. This is what will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction shut out from his presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Next one, please. Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death, Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Next one, please. Romans 14. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Next one. Second Corinthians. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So the scriptures clearly testify to the reality of a final judgment. Next slide, please. The creeds of the church testify in a similar fashion. Both the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed speak about our Lord coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead. The art of the church speaks about this as well. Next one, please. 
Here is um, Autun, Autun Cathedral. I can't pronounce that. Autun, Autun Cathedral. The tympanum. Above the doorway, this is a cathedral in France. And um, the uh, art and architecture of that cathedral, consecrated in 1130, shows our Lord seated in um, judgment with the um, righteous to our left, as in the Sistine Chapel painting, and the souls of the dead being weighed in the scales on the right. This is what people would have seen on entering that cathedral from its consecration in 1130 and still see today. Next one, please. The Deus Irae. Anyone um, fond of music? Um, All the lovely requiems, or is it requia, that we um, know and love so well. There is a piece of music with this one. I don't know whether you can... Do you see in the yellow box up there? Chris, if you get the the little what's-its-name and click that loudspeaker with that uh, pointer is that's what it's called Day of Wrath let me just read this this is the English translation which I think is a lovely poem Day of Wrath, O Day of Mourning see fulfilled the prophet's warning heaven and earth in ashes burning O what fear man's bosom rendeth when from heaven the judge descendeth on whose sentence all dependeth wondrous sound the trumpet flingeth Through earth's sepulchres it ringeth, all before the throne it bringeth. Death is struck and nature quaking, all creation is awaking to its judge and answer making. Lo, the book exactly worded, wherein all hath been recorded, thence shall judgment be awarded. It's pretty serious stuff, and if you know Verdi's Requiem in particular, which is the soundtrack to that, I thought if by this stage you'd fallen asleep, it might have woken some of you up. You know that boom. It uh, is sobering. And in the Latin, it's all the more mysterious and spectacular. Whatever about the way it's presented, that is the message. It was the message of the church. It's a message, message of the Catholic Church until that particular part of the Latin Mass was done away with, with the Second Vatican Council. The message of the creeds the message of art, the message of um, the words of the Requiem Mass um, in the Catholic Church from the 13th century onwards. Next one, please. Um, We have more art. Hans Memling's Triptych, 1467. That one actually predates Michelangelo. Shows St. Michael at the bottom, again with the scales weighing the souls. The righteous on the left rising from the dead and being ushered into heaven and clothed, the damned being taken away on the right. And then the next one is the Sistine Chapel. Again, 1537. Um, Next one, please. I don't know whether anyone would recognize these particular words, chapter XXX111. Who else would write chapters in that archaic way, but Presbyterians... God has appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. All persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. The end of God's appointing this day 
is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life, but the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Um, As you all know, 1646, the Westminster Confession of Faith. So there we have um, an element of the Christian story um, grounded in music, in word, in art, in stone, in creed, in confession, in scripture. It's there like um, a thread that runs through um, the entire Christian story. It's been a tradition in legal circles to have these services, pictures of which you've seen at the Westminster Abbey one. We have one now in our own jurisdiction here in Northern Ireland. And uh, if you look at the next picture, um, it was held in Fisherwick this year. We had our own, I can, think I can call him our own, dear father Jerry spoke. Derek McKelvey, uh, Minister of Fisherwick. Um, yes, that is Mary Peter. She's the Lord Lieutenant and she stands in for Her Majesty when Her Majesty is too busy to come. So um, the opening of the new law year has been going on since the 1200s with a Christian service attended by the judges. Um, John Wesley preached at one such service in 1758 on the text, These shall go away into eternal punishment and the righteous into eternal life. He preached that sermon in Bedford. Uh, He spoke on the finality of judgment. He said, um, it should be observed, it is the very same word which is used both in the former and the latter clause. It follows that either the punishment lasts forever or the reward too will come to an end. And then he says, no, never, unless God could come to an end or his mercy and truth could fail. You try it yourselves later. Next one, please. This is from Rob Bell's book, chapter 7. He says, the good news is better than that. Um, Could God say to someone, truly humbled, broken, and desperate for reconciliation, sorry, too late. And then he says, at the centre of the Christian tradition, since the first church, have been a number who insist that history is not tragic, hell is not forever, and love in the end wins, and all will be reconciled to God. That's a big claim, isn't it? Is anyone else like me slightly unsettled by, um, by that? Maybe I've misunderstood the man, he said, <laughs> insincerely. <laughs> I I could see it all on your faces, so I said it for myself. I don't think I have, but um, it worries me that um, in the desire to promote a gospel that's acceptable in modern society, there is this pushing off the envelope so much that the whole idea of hell is uh, tinkered with. Next one, please. 
This guy here had no difficulty in believing in hell. Again, mentioned this morning. Isn't it amazing, Steve, and you've discovered this yourself, how um, when you're preparing for something quite independently, time and again you find resonances of it in what was said that morning or that evening. And I couldn't believe the stuff you were coming out with this morning. (laughs) So, um, C.S. Lewis, next one please. He um, famously said of hell, uh, the doctrine of hell has the full support of scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. He says, if a game is played, it must be possible to lose it. If the happiness of a creature lies in self-surrender, no one can make that surrender but himself though many can help them to make it. And he may refuse. I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully, all will be saved. But my reason retorts, without their will or with it. If I say without their will, I'd once perceive a contradiction. How can the supreme voluntary act of self-surrender be involuntary? If I say with their will, my reason replies, how if they will not give in? He follows that also in another uh, of his works, The Great Divorce. He says in that uh, work, there are two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. And then he says, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, to those who knock, it is opened. And that's a very important aspect that we should bear in mind at all times when considering what I said at the start. It's a painful subject. And it's this, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, and to those who knock, It is opened. Lewis certainly believed in hell and he believed in the finality of hell. Let's look at the next one, uh, which is um, often uh, referred to as um, the locus classicus, as we lawyers say. Had to drop in a bit of Latin, hadn't I? even though I got 29 out of 100 in my Latin at school. Um, This is the part of um, Scripture where we turn to most frequently to look at uh, the doctrine of the final judgment, the separation of the sheep from the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then it goes on as to what our Lord will say to those on his right. And we know that very well. I'll not take the time now to read it. We know also that the righteous express surprise. When did we do this for you, Lord? And the Lord ultimately says, well, when you did it for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. And the next slide. The converse of that yeah, we're still catching up, is 
The converse of that is those on his left. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. Thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will also ask, when did we see all these things and do nothing about it? I paraphrase. And he will reply, truly I tell you, whenever you didn't do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Um, Next one, please, Um, Chris. There's Professor Walderstorff. He spoke on this not that long ago here in uh, this very spot. I think if um, my hands were swabbed, there would be a mixed profile of his DNA and my DNA from the swabs, since we're clutching the same lectern. Me, slightly more tightly than he had to. (laughs) Well, um, when Professor Walderstorff spoke, I'm so pleased I could get that name out without tripping over it, spoke on this theme. His purpose was to focus on what it is that forms the discriminating characteristic that separates sheep from goats. Um, Although he very kindly, you will remember, placed us all into the category of sheep, he wasn't actually saying anything about our eternal destiny because he knows as well as the rest of us. It is the shepherd who divides the sheep from the goats. And I see Hilary Dalton here, uh, 30 years ago, um, and more in fact, maybe 33 years ago, I learned this lesson from the late Godfrey Dalton when Hilary had one of her Sunday lunches for indigent students when she was warden with Godfrey in one of the halls of residence. Godfrey was showing a series of slides of the Holy Land and uh, he rather nonchalantly flashed up a hillside in the Holy Land and said, oh, that's just some sheep or goats and flew on to the next one. And he must have noticed from my expression that I was puzzled. And he he stopped and turned to me and he said, don't you know, um, you can't tell the difference in Palestinian sheep and goats. I said, no, I don't know that. He said, oh, no, no. Our sheep and goats are very closely bred since the agricultural revolution. We all know what a sheep looks like and a goat looks like. In Palestine, they don't look quite so different. And they all graze together on the hillside that is a herd of sheep and goats. And when our Lord used that example, he, he knew that it was the shepherd who would separate those people. I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. The shepherd could do it. And there I learnt an amazing truth about a story that I thought I knew Uh, but didn't know. So you and I can't really spot the difference between the sheep and the goats, but our Lord can. Um, If we look at the next one, and we're nearly finished. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of dust in your brother's eye? And pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? 
You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You and I cannot tell who are sheep and who are goats. And in that I find um, a degree of comfort. Uh, Jesus warns us not to judge. It is for our Lord to decide. And there I place my faith in the goodness of God. Through no merit of mine, I believe the gospel message that I will be counted among the sheep. And I hope for those whom I love the very same. It is not through anything I have achieved that I uh, am a Christian. It is through God's grace. That same God who chose to do that for me is the loving God who has the discernment to separate. That is not to say there will not be a separation, but it is to say you and I cannot tell who are the sheep on that hillside and who are the goats. And just to close with um, some more words about the character of that God, Isaiah 42, a very nice girly associated with this church, whom I see here tonight smirking at that description. But that was the very word she used to me about herself, so I'm using it back to her. Left me down um, a CD that she'd been listening to, thinking it might help me as I struggled through this talk. And there it did, Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings, the islands will put their hope. The God whom we trust will not allow a smouldering wick to be snuffed out. That is an important truth that we should um, return to again and again. To go back to that book I mentioned by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, he... um, causes the main character, well not the main character, but one of the characters in it, George MacDonald, who was responsible indeed for that quote, again, that Steve used this morning, God is easy to please but hard to satisfy. Lewis was quoting MacDonald, and he has MacDonald say this, which is, I think, on that Isaiah passage, if there's one wee spark under all those ashes, we'll blow it till the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes we not go on blowing them in our own eyes forever. They must be swept up. All our Lord needs to get someone into the category of sheep is a spark, just a spark, just a mustard seed. Our Lord will blow it or grow it. I write that down, that's good. <laughs> that's the character of the God whom we love. Next one. St. Matthew um, records what our Lord said. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks the door will be opened. 
Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? That is the character of our Lord. We may not know or understand um, what exactly is involved in the, the numbers of people who are going to be part of the elect and those who are going to be part of the damned. We may not fully understand the mechanism by which they are to be separated, what that means. Is it, is it works or faith or is it a bit of both? Or is your faith without works dead? Or what is it? But we do know sufficient to trust in the goodness of God. We do know sufficient not to trust in our ability to to, to judge or discern people, not to attempt that. And for some, I'm an intellectual cop-out. I don't grapple with these things sufficiently. I'm not prepared to. I think the Christian faith is a universal faith, not a universalist faith. That's quite a different thing. That's what Rob Bell's on about. It's a universal faith. It's a faith open to the person from the lowliest understanding to the great intellects, some of whom we have here tonight. I'm looking at Sloan Bell there. (laughs) It's a faith that's open to all, and therefore the degree to which we are able to intellectualize these things differs from person to person. We don't have to be able to intellectualize them fully. We just have to trust and follow what our Lord says. Uh, The final slide is um, God himself speaking in Job. He's saying to Job, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, This far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning? Or shown the dawn its place, that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. God, after Job and his friends, have had that whole book discussing the rights and wrongs and the whys and wherefores of the situation Job found himself in. God speaks, and in that passage reminds Job that... um, In all honesty, some of the ways of God are too deep for us to understand. And although it is important to wrestle and use your intellect and struggle with it to the best you can, there are mysteries in our Christian faith. Um, I think the whole doctrine of the last judgment is a mystery. But I think it's part of the Christian faith nonetheless. Uh, I believe that it would be wrong for us to reinterpret it so as to get people into the church or in order to avoid pain and unhappiness for ourselves 
We're obliged to um, understand the gospel, the full gospel. Um, We're not obliged to be able to intellectualize or understand every nuance or aspect of it. And we should always bear in mind that um, God is greater than us. God is not just a big human being. God is God. We weren't there when he laid the earth's foundation any more than Job. And some things uh, we will never understand this side of eternity. So we've dwelt on um, a subject that's difficult. I think it's important. It may not be what um, dispensing with justice conjured up in your mind, but certainly it's something that I've wrestled with, and I hope um, it has been at least useful to read all of those scriptures. As a lawyer, I'm always putting forward somebody else's case. I'm never having to put forward my own. Somebody hands me a brief with all of the instructions. All I do is speak it. And so if you think I cheated tonight, I was speaking all those scriptures. And that's our Lord's word. And uh, I pray that God's spirit will cause us all to think about our Lord's word and what he is saying to us about these issues. Thank you. So we're going to close with our final hymn.